Well, good morning, uh, good afternoon, good good late afternoon to some of you joining us. Uh, my name is John Carroll. I'm the CEO and founder of the Service Council, and welcome to today's uh, segment, uh, a, a part of the in-service podcast series uh, that we've been hosting here for a couple years now. Um, really, uh, it's been a huge joy to to welcome thought leaders from all sides of the market, influencers, uh, best-selling authors, uh, industry practitioners, some of the technologists uh, across the community. And, and today uh, we are extremely pleased, I'm humbled uh, to be joined by a gentleman by the name of Jim Bond. Jim is the, P he's a PhD, he's an author and an advisor. Uh, and um, it, we're talking about becoming an architect of change. Uh, Jim has, uh, my goodness, uh, talked about this topic over uh, a series of, of many decades uh, influencing organizations in terms of how effectively to change. Mm. Jim, a very warm welcome to you to today's discussion. Hey, John, it's so good to see you. Thanks again for the opportunity and a quick shout out to James Milet, uh, somebody that we both uh, really admire, a, a leader of leaders. I'm grateful for his, uh, his uh, contact with you and our mutual connection. Absolutely. Yeah. James is a, a friend and colleague for many, many years, uh, served as a board member at a couple of pit stops along his uh, illustrious career, if you will. And uh, yeah, he's he's just an awesome guy. So uh, appreciate the introduction here. So uh, before we get into today's discussion, um, for those that are listening, um, we want it to be a, a participatory event, right? So if there's opportunities for you to comment, react, uh, submit questions to Jim along our journey today. Uh, we encourage you to do so, and we will not wait until the end to get to those questions, if you will. We'll we'll kind of pit stop and audible and um, and and see if we can get a, a response from Jim on the fly here. Um, so uh, this uh, podcast here will be recorded. If you'd like to revisit it, share it with colleagues, use it as a resource. Um, you can access it on the Service Council's website on our social platform, uh, LinkedIn. We're broadcasting to a live LinkedIn audience today, so thank you for joining. Um, you can get it on whatever podcast channel you subscribe to, whether it's Spotify or, or Overcast or YouTube or Apple or, or what have you. Uh, the podcast is kind of you know put across all those different channels wherever you get it. Um, and so uh, we'll find our way somewhere within the 45 minute to 60 minute range um, and uh, sort of shoot for the moon, land amongst the stars theory here. And uh, without further ado, let's get into the discussion because I'll tell you, you know, this topic of change management is something that it, it is, it, there's an art and there's a science to it, right? There is um, uh, a lot of challenge with respect to change in terms of adoption, in terms of cultural shifts, in terms of all the pitfalls that uh, fall all the way along that journey in terms of not finding cultural alignment or mm -hmm. Uh, not aligning your team um, in terms of uh, the process of change. And, and we've been talking over the last several years about digital transformation and, you know, a lot of sort of reactive approaches to change management were happening when, when we hit the pandemic and when we were in the middle of it, in terms of work from home and, and all the things about returning to work now. Um, and so uh, the change management process has been very dynamic. <laughs> and so, you know, taking an agile approach to change management is something we've been hearing a lot of. And, and we're going to try and frame for our listening audience and hopefully participating audience today some key nuggets and some takeaways uh, that Jim has gathered over many, many years 
um, that that might be useful for you as you continuously change within your organization. So, uh, Jim, you know, I know you, uh, but the audience doesn't necessarily know you. Could we start with an introduction to yourself? Tell us a little bit about yourself, your career, and what sort of things you've done over this uh, long, um, impactful career that you've had. Well, thanks, John. I, I think the most important thing to start with is I come from a deep blue collar background. Awesome. My dad was my dad was a welder. Uh, my dad was a kind of guy who would say to me, "About my PhD, that and forty cents will get you a cup of coffee." <laughs> he was a get the job done guy. Uh, my work ethic in the white collar world was very much built off of a blue collar work ethic. Uh, my dad was about doesn't matter how hard the problem is, go figure out a way to get that done. So that that's the heart of me. That is how I work and what I've done. I've always looked for. Instead of making a problem too complex, let's break it down into something we can do. I uh, worked at Johnson Controls for 33 years. I retired from there in 2013, opened my own consulting organization, which I still have, which is called ProAxios uh, LLC. I worked with hospitals. Uh, I had a, a stint with 80 lawyers, which was interesting. I have worked with many small companies and recently been doing just focusing on Southeast Wisconsin. I'm, I'm a big fan of Wisconsin, a big fan of small business. So that's been where I've been at recently is worked with a small business, helping them with a significant change as well. I uh, earned my PhD at the University of Wisconsin in 2001. I've done a bunch of research, still doing research. And right now I'm coaching doctoral students at a local college. So that's what I do. I'm I'm curious. You you mentioned 80 attorneys you worked with. Yes. Did, did you get payback for the many years that you've engaged with attorneys over over that period of uh, your career? Or let's what, just what, say what let's just say it was a change management experience <laughs> that, that I will never forget. Because I mean, the, the natural bent of a of an attorney to say is that let's define details. I mean, even getting into a, a workshop or a case study. Uh, turned out to be a little bit more complex than I expected. My daughter was a lawyer. My son-in-law is a lawyer. Uh, so it, uh, let's just say it was demanding. <laughs> outstanding. Outstanding. Well, let's let's go ahead and get into the topic du jour. Okay. So what, let's just start with a really simple question. What What is the simplest way to understand change, Jim? What What are your perspectives on that? Just kind of breaking it down in its simplest form. So I, I was meeting with a senior vice president of a major corporation one day, and he was really fed up with all of the, the kumbaya associated with change management. And he says, what's change management? And I remember sitting across from him at a restaurant. I said, have you ever moved from one place to another? <laughs> and I was like, the light just exploded because this guy's an expat. He's lived all over the world. He knows the trauma of change moving from one house to another. And by the way, this is almost universal across the world. If you go to Europe, people will say, I've moved house. Have you moved house? And people in uh, other countries, everybody, everybody has moved at least once, even if it's just out of your house into an apartment or whatever. Yeah. So that's a universal way to say, okay, think about what you're doing when you move from one place to another. All the disruption, the anxiety, uh, the details you have to cover, the things you might forget. That is my, by far, in my mind, the best analogy for change I've ever come up with. Outstanding. I love it. I love it. It's a great, simple way to think about it. And, and we're actually going to get into sort of, you know, some of the inhibitors of change. And, and we'll kind of deepen <coughs> our conversation here. Psychologists have noted that the biggest challenge with change is that our actions don't line up with our goals. 
What concerns do team members have when introducing a new change? What have you heard are those inhibiting factors or perhaps those challenges that are encountered when they start to think about or enact a change? Okay, there's a couple of probably the biggest one overall is how did you do change in the past? People have really powerful memories. And if you tried to do an IT system in, I don't know, in 1994 and it did not go well and they've been there that long, they will remember that. <laughs> and they will also remember the amount of effort that they put in. So the reason that their actions are not going to match the change to development is because they're a little concerned about how this is going to go. Now, there, there's things you can do to fix that. The other thing that you have to be really careful about, especially in the service world, is anything that diminishes the competence of the service provider. I don't care where you're working, in a bank, uh, technicians, wherever you are, if you diminish the competence of the service provider, you're going to put them in a situation where they're gonna rebel against the change because they're facing the customer, they're concerned about being competent and in the service world, competence is number one. Executives forget that. They just say, well, you just go do this change. But I'll give you a Quick example, I remember when, uh, in fact, James, James will remember this, when we uh, set up some things, uh, giving new remote devices to people out in the field. Um, I went out and talked to people in the field and it was not the technology that they were concerned about. A lot of these technicians were older, like me, yeah. and they found that the size of the font was too small for them to read and they were afraid that when they would read that with their customer, they would not be competent. That's a really big deal. Yeah. So you're, you're going to people will want to do a change if they see the logic of it. But if their competence is, in, is going to be diminished or they've seen change done poorly in the past, I guarantee you, you're going to build up some resistance immediately. Yeah. And you just call out like a, a minute detail to the change, right, that you don't often think about. Some of those minute details slip their way through the cracks and, and then they become about, you know, as you're in the midst of change. Right. But, so, but, yeah. but even think about the analogy of moving. Yeah. You're going to change. You have to change your license from, uh, I don't know, say Minnesota to Texas. Sure. There's a detail in there. It's a yeah. frustrating detail. But if you don't do it after a certain period of time, you won't be licensed to drive in that state. Again, the analogy holds. And these little details are the, the, the kickers along the way because people get into a pattern of life. Yep. Sort of a hamster wheel where they're doing things. And all of a sudden, now you're going to throw that whole thing out the window and you're going to put them on a conveyor belt. Uh, so those details matter. Outstanding. So let's talk about like, as you're preparing to change, is, is there a step that happens pre-change uh, that can be taken to examine, you know, the, the, the willingness, the propensity for an organization or a individual or a set of individuals to embrace the change? Is there some sort of pre-step to change that organizations can consider as they think about embarking on a journey? Uh, the, the, the number one, the number one thing for every executive out there, find the organizational influencers. Yeah. Who are the people in that organization that people will listen to and attend to? They may not be a high place on the organizational chart, but if these people have patents or they've got a track record that's outstanding or they're, they're big haymakers when it comes to being salespeople or if they're inventive or innovative or if they've got some heroic action that they did that is legendary, find them. Yeah. If you can't get them on your side prior to the change down the road after you've done all the work, those influencers are going to be the people that can say, you know what, it's not going to work. Yeah. And they will have more power than any number of executive discussions that you can have 
PowerPoints or whatever. I used to go out into the field and I would talk to the people that I knew would resist the change. And I'd say, okay, what's, what's up, you know? And then the other piece of it that, that with, with that is ensuring that you understand their language. James and I have talked about this a lot, their language. Don't use corporate language when you're talking about change. People don't necessarily care about an ROI. They care about if it affects their 401k. They don't necessarily care about certain, what I would call corporate speak. They're wondering, what's this thing really going to do for us? Yeah. Again, going back to my dad, if I told him a whole bunch of, you know, gobbledygook corporate stuff, he'd look at me like, yeah, that's fine. But what's it really going to do? And that, by the way, is the other thing that to, to answer your question about what you can do up front. I think executives fail a big test in the beginning, which is understanding a rationale for change. They don't do it. They, they just say, well, let's just go do this. Uh, when I have my workshops on change, I say, we're going to spend a couple of hours on this. And by the end of that couple of hours, they will come up with a statement that they've all finally agreed on, which is really important for another reason. I can get to that later, which states the purpose in very clear language. Why are we doing this? Yeah. And that's so that, you know, number one, so you have a continuous uh, message across the, the board, but also so that you're in agreement on why you're doing this, because people may not like the change, but if you clearly explain to them why you're doing it and they get that, they can move with you. If you have seven different executives giving seven different reasons why you're already in chaos. Yeah. And I think executives just think, well, this is going to be great for the company. You have to give deeper reasons. And the, and the acid test from me, John, is this. Yep. The acid test is if I walk to the guy in the shop floor who's running a mill, like my son does, and he asks me why we're doing the change, if I can't explain that clearly to him, or to uh, another person working there, and, and she's talking to me, why are we doing this? Yeah. If I can't do that, then I don't really have a good rationale for change. I have a bunch of words that people are going to argue about. That clarity, that rationale is critical. I, I talk about that a lot in my book, Architects for Change. And I think, I think executives will take on language from their consultants and other things, but they're not thinking about the people in their organization that have to face this, uh, that are going to have to deal with it, especially your middle managers, they need to understand the why. Yeah. I mean, Simon Sinek talks about this stuff all the time, but I don't think executives take that to heart. Why are you doing the change? Yeah. And, and have a clear answer for that. That, along with understanding where your organizational influencers are, that'll get you way ahead. Jeez. Uh, Jim, I'm already like developing a checklist for, you know, what our listening and participating audience should should take away from today's discussion. I heard you find the champions of change, understand their language, personalize the change. Um, what is the rationale for change? Why are we doing this? What are we solving for? You know, those are some of the things I've heard so far. We're going to keep sort of building on this checklist here because I'm I'm pretty sure we'll get some more nuggets uh, that uh, our listening audience can take away. Okay. And, and you mentioned something about executives being vulnerable to some, you know, big mistakes during change. Can you mention maybe one or two examples? You know, what are some of the things you've seen or found more commonly? Well, I, I use the concept of architect because an sure. architect is present at the groundbreaking. They're present when the structural steel is going up. They're present when the drywall is going in. They're present to check out the electrical and plumbing. They're present when the roof goes on. And an architect signs off ultimately on that project. And that's another analogy. When you're building a building, you're an architect. That's why I say an architect of change. 
Most executives say, this is a great idea. It's going to save us money. And we're going to do the Nike thing and just do it. And then go on to the next thing. People yeah. watch that. They yeah. watch to see, are you really committed to this? Or is this just another thing? As opposed to some of the brilliant change leaders I've seen who are having consistent meetings to check in. They're not doing all the work. They've developed a good team to do that. But they're with that change until the last shingle is put on that roof. They're with it until the last electrical outlet, the switch has gone on. The architect of change takes it from front to back. The, the, in, the executives that just think they're going to start this and just let it go, that's a big mistake because you're, you're engaging so much in your organization. You're engaging uh, finances. You're, you're, you're going to engage whether or not you're going to have meet sales targets. I mean, uh, Gartner Group showed that with a uh, dramatic change, you're going to lose some money for a while. You have to plan for that. Yeah. And I think executives, again, have the idea this is going to be great. They get what I like to call ROI blindness. They're so excited about the ROI, they forget that there's a lot of work to do in there. So I think that's one of the big ones. I, I, overall, just sticking with that change from front to back, you don't have to show up all the time. Everybody's busy. But when, letting people know, I've checked in, this is what's happening. Because if you have something going wrong, you also want to be there to be, be able to make a little course correction, maybe add resources, maybe take resources off. That would be the biggest one. If you're going to be an architect, you got to be there from the groundbreaking until you uh, cut the ribbon. Love it. Absolutely love it. Let's let's think about uh, sort of building on the conversation here around the different types of changes that organizations go through. And what have you heard or found or observed that has been some of the most difficult changes and, and why? You know, what what are some of the symptoms that make these changes more challenging for organizations commonly? Well, I'm going to do just a bit, a bit of sales for a second, John. Yeah. This is the one, getting IT right. Yep. When you do a new IT system in your organization, whether it's ERP, HR system, HRIS, it could be a CRM, it could be uh, a new training system. When you do that, you're touching the DNA of your organization. If you just do a simple change, like I would say, like a relocation, even though some of those things can be complex, that's manageable because you can communicate your way out of it. But when you're touching data and you're touching old data systems that have been around a long time, I got some funny stories about that. I mean, people people in the past that were working in COBOL that did patches to new systems and, and, and executives did not plan for that costs hundreds of thousands of dollars. Uh, so the biggest one of all is putting in a, a, a getting what I call the organizational app. When you install the organizational app, I mean, executives know this, but I don't really think they realize the, the magnitude of what that means. And the biggest thing that they're using, remember, it goes back to the idea of how did you do change in the past? The biggest thing they're using is the, the, the precious organizational resource of human motivation. I don't care how much time you got or money you got. If you tap human motivation incorrectly, you're going to drain that down and you're going to get people that are going to be tired and not be engaged in the change. Yeah. All those things go into this big system. And so that's the biggest change that I've ever, I've done five of them. Yeah. And I, I, that's the reason I wrote this book because a lot of books are written about it, but this is really practical. Again, going back to what, I, what my dad would say, how, what does it mean? What do you have to do? Specific detailed elements that you have to do to get done. Now, again, an executive doesn't have to do this, but they got to make sure this stuff gets done. Yeah. Uh, and uh, a lot of it's quite frankly, grueling work. Cleaning up your data, they might have a Jim Bone, Dr. Jim Bone, Jim Bone, PhD, Dr. Jim Bone, you know, you, all this stuff is in the system. Yeah, That's grueling work. So hire out a couple of college kids to, to, to clean that stuff up. 
But that's the big one. You're touching the DNA of your organization. Be prepared for uh, what I would call like when I do plumbing projects at home, uh, it always takes me three times as long and four times as much. <laughs> yeah. And I, I, I guess there's a parallel, right? Because IT oh, yeah. projects are, are pretty consistently over budget and out of, uh, you know, a, a lot longer in terms of delivery. Although we've seen a lot of agile approaches and, you know, a lot of, you know, connecting of the dots, you know, the tissue in between these modernization efforts that are happening, right? Because, you know, there was so much reactive moderniz modernization that were happening across the customer journey and across service delivery that, you know, was was making an impact, improving the customer journey, improving that service delivery journey, but they weren't woven into the organization, people, process, technology, you know, all these things together. And, and so you saw these pockets where, you know, things kind of fell off, right? So I'll, I'll give you an example, like a remote support experience, right? You, you, you jump into a see what I see type experience or augmented reality experience. Well, what then happens if you have to jump out of that and into a dispatch scenario where you have to actually send a technician out because you couldn't resolve it? We saw a lot of sort of disconnection of these functional customer processes that, you know, are common. Right, they're they're just common outcomes from issues that you're trying to resolve that perhaps you can't in a remote setting, and all of a sudden you've got a dispatch, and you know you've got to integrate these things together, right? So we saw a lot of integration happening. Um, can we go to that IT dig further on that IT system sure, uh, sure. problem and how big of a deal it is? Uh, where do executives go wrong when introducing a new system? What, what do you think is uh, the biggest sort of wrong moment? Uh, there's a couple of things. Number one, I'll go back to ROI blindness. Yeah. Uh, you'll have a lot of a lot of consultants come in and say, you know, you're going to have a payback in two years. This is what it looks like. They've got beautiful slides. Executives get really excited. They're looking at more on their bottom line at the end of this. Uh, and I think it. I think you have to be brutally honest with yourself about how much effort this is really going to take. I know the ROI looks good, but rare rare is the company that goes back and looks three years later at whether or not that ROI was actually achieved and by then the consultant has moved on uh, I think that's a big one I think another one is is this is you find a couple of people that are available to do this project so you use the B team when you need to use the A team okay so a couple of people are available uh, you know whether it's legal HR whatever let's bring them in they've got time on their hands uh, and, and as as opposed to saying we need the top flight people to do this, to stick with it. And those top flight people have to have other stuff taken off their plate. Very often what we do is we add a big project like this into an organization and we add, I don't know, take some HR person who's a, just a great HR person. Yeah. They have all kinds of other things going on. And now you're bringing them into this additional work. Yeah, Something's got to give, John. Something's yeah. got to give. Yeah. I, remember, I remember being at a restaurant one time and uh, it was a Sunday morning and I remember the waitress coming up to the table and saying, I didn't sign up for this. And what she meant was they had added more tables into the restaurant than what she, what she was hired on 10 years before that. Yeah. So she was overburdened and that happens with uh, employees as well. I mean, they're saying I didn't sign up for this and that's, that's where you can lose them. And the other thing that you do when you build out the A team is ensure there's some kind of reward for this. Yeah. Because again, you're bringing in top flight people. They need to know there's something at the end of this other than just a plaque 
Um, they, they need to know there's something that's going to benefit their family. They're going to have more sleepless nights. Yep. If you put those things together, I think that will help. But I think, again, I think executives think, well, let's just go and do this. Yeah. We'll bring these people together. Uh, that That's a big mess. I think another one, I mentioned it before a little bit, is not doing enough research into where your systems are connected to old systems. Yep. You you have that right now. They're bailing wire and twine, but you don't know that because some genius back in the 1990s connected this together. That guy is retired or she <laughs> retired. Those systems are talking, but you don't know how they're talking. And now you come in with a brand new CRM and you can't find data that's supposed to be pulled and you don't know why. Mm. And it's like, we didn't do enough work looking deeper into the systems to find out where the data was coming from. Yeah. Uh, because th those kinds of interfaces can cost hundreds of thousands of dollars. Yeah. Um, probably the, the last one that I would put in there is I think executives fail to think about the frontline person again and the, the need that that frontline person has for support when things go wrong. Yeah. So you've got the technician out in the field. It's 20 below zero. He's working on a chiller someplace. And all of a sudden something goes crazy and he has no one to call, no one to text. He's in trouble. Building out that back-end resource to be able – these are the people that will be available 24-7, by the way. Yep. 24-7 because yep. people do work around the clock. Yep. Making sure you build that out, that is a big deal because then people have the assurance, okay, if something does go wrong, there's somebody that can help me. No different than what we do when we are pro having a problem with a new system that we've installed on our PC. Sure. I contact Geek Squad or I contact Microsoft. There's somebody available. They help me out. It's got to be there. Yeah, uh, and and I think again because we get so excited with the novelty of the change, especially executives, and going back to our eye blindness, they're not thinking deep into it enough to say we have to have a resource once this thing's up and running to take care of people. If you do that, that's going to reduce a whole bunch of anxiety. Absolutely, geez, uh, you know, you you bring up a couple of you know, memories that I've had from previous keynotes and discussions we've had at our Smarter Services Executive Symposium. One of the ones that I look back on probably most fondly is a gentleman by the name of Rusty Walther. And Rusty was the VP of Global Customer Escalations for Hewlett Packard Enterprise. Nice. Uh, his, la his last stop on his career, he had he was with Network Appliance in a similar role. He was with many other firms over the course of uh, a long, uh, you know, really, really great career. And man, he's hilarious. And he delivered this this story uh, around, you know, how, how do you rebuild your organization? So if you're if you're a service leader and you need to just rebuild an organization and you're going through change, you know, what do you what do you do? And he equated it. He lives on a farm out in Oregon and, you know, he manages all sorts of family, uh, you know, uh, uh, animals on his farm and. He said, "Man, the the raccoons they they travel they travel in packs, right? And and if one raccoon, it, it, you know, is allowed to stick around, well, you you've got a whole herd of raccoons that are uh, attacking your farm." And he said, "Shoot the damn raccoon!" <laughs> so I so I know that's a I know that's a little brash, but there are detractors to change, detractors to cultural embracement that you really need to make sure you have alignment of. And so that kind of brings back uh, Rusty's uh, story. He, I mean, the whole uh, audience was just in tears laughing. He's hilarious. You bring up another important point, John, which yeah. you have raccoons in your organizations. Yeah. And again, I'm not being critical of people. I'm mean, just saying yeah. some people just don't belong on the project. Yeah. <clears throat> so if it's not going well, 
Yep. You, you don't have to make a big deal out of it. You don't have to, to take, take away their dignity, but remove them yeah. from the project and give them to something else. Because on a big project like an IT project, you have to have all the cylinders turning. Sure. I remember being on a 50-person team when we did one particular change. And everybody was – it was it was magic. It was the best team I was ever on. Uh, but if you have situations where you have a, a, a constant naysayer, yeah. you know, one of the things you can do is to say maybe, it's, maybe they're incompetent and they need some help. Okay, we'll give them that. Sure. But if they're really not wanting to help at all and they want to continue yeah. to, to break down the change, find somebody else for that role. Because yeah. other people, when you're working on a big change, you need every bit of human energy you can. And the naysayers really don't don't do a lot. I will say one of the key things you, you might be careful about, though, with naysayers is sometimes they have something to say that's important. Yeah. So just maybe looking at their personality and saying this guy is always a naysayer. Stop for just a second. They may know something yeah. that's critical listening for that. And maybe that'll correct the whole problem going forward. Sure. Uh, sometimes just respecting somebody who's trying to tell you something is a big deal. Yeah. But but if they're continually like that on the project, it's it's good to remove the raccoons. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Outstanding. Uh you, you you said something else that really stuck with me, Jim. And and this was this involvement culture. Um, so involving the front line in the change. Um, you know, one of the things that we observed from our annual Voice of the Field Service Engineer survey was that the frontline technicians and support agents that are out there fighting and putting out all these fires, right, with the customer, um, don't necessarily feel like they're a part of the change. And so then you've got adoption challenges when you start to roll out new technology. It feels like, you know, the flavor of the month, right? Another feature and functionality mobile, like goodness gracious. Um, but when you involve them, you know, they're you're solving for the most critical needs that they have because they're part of that story. They're part of that change. You know, 40, I think it was 41 percent didn't feel like, uh, uh, you know, the voice of the field service engineer. We had about twenty six hundred respondents um, and that's frontline technicians and engineers. Forty one percent didn't feel like they had a role in innovation. And uh, in a, you know, about one out of three didn't feel like management listened to them or involved their feedback in change opportunities. And so there's there's still a little bit of a disconnect there. And I, I think that that's something to really double down on in terms of emphasizing, because I think it's really critical. Well, one of the things I always did, remember I talked about those people that I knew would resist the change? Sure. I, I kept working with them, and then I would ask them to be the people that spoke on the conference calls. Yeah. So it was peer to peer. Yeah. Uh, we all know that I'm from the, I'm from corporate. I'm here to help. It's kind of like <laughs> kiss of death, but if there's a really strong person out there in the field who says, yeah, this is going to be tough, yeah. but I like some of the stuff that's going on and they're respected. That is worth gold. And, and that's one of the things you do when you build out your team, making sure that you get some of those people involved in the communication process. Sure. Because I may not be able to be involved in everything and you may not take all my feedback, but if I get a sense that you've actually listened to some people out here that are doing the stuff that I'm doing, that means that you understand the challenges and pains that I go through every day. Yeah. That means that you're likely to have brought in some knowledge, wisdom, expertise in this change that I can relate to. And it goes back to using their language. Sure. Talking about what's going on in the field from their language, not corporate stuff. Um, people re resist that stuff, but, but having people saying, okay, this is what's happening out there using terms that they use every day. 
that connects with people. It's like you're actually hearing me and you're hearing what I'm talking about. I, I, I can't stress that enough. Again, it, it just goes back to my, my ethos of if I couldn't communicate things with my dad about what he was doing and I started to sound like I was kind of more important than I was, <laughs> you know, especially tough technicians, people that are working on the front line, they resist that stuff at all costs. I would sit at a McDonald's with techs, listen to them there, or go and sit with them, uh, you know, out in the shop, talk with shop people. Sure. What's going on out here? I knew a couple of leaders in, in my former company that were brilliant with that. They would go out and talk with techs, sit with them at a lunch counter. And I mean, it just makes all the difference in the world. Those techs understood these guys had big jobs. Yeah. But they also stood, understood that they were listening to them, trying to understand what can we do to make this go. They didn't change the phone. The train will leave in the station. Yeah. If you're going to be on this on this train as we move. Maybe you can tell us how to adjust the furniture on the train. Maybe you can tell us how to paint it. We're going to keep going yeah. this way because it's got to be done for yeah. your benefit as well. Yeah. But you can be you can be part of uh, of how the chain gets uh, change gets enacted. I think that's a big deal. Yeah, and one of our board members uh, just kind of given a a rally cry just behind our discussion here about how mind-boggling it is that leaders still don't engage those individual contributors um, who are most impacted by the change. And Juan Cruz from Hamanetics, thank you for your participation. Juan's a board member of the of the Service Council and uh, a real uh, a critical thinker. And uh, we had Juan on a recent podcast, actually. So Juan, thanks for your contribution. Yeah, uh, really cool. Juan, thanks for that. Yeah, yeah absolutely. So let's, let's go to the... Um, the the key things to do when insta installing the organizational app, right? So can you talk a little bit about that element of the change, right? Once you decide to change, enact the change, how do you then begin to sort of install that organizational app when it comes to that IT system change? Okay, we, we talked about one thing already, make sure you've got a clear rationale. Mm -hmm. Make sure you get the A team, not the B team. Uh, make sure you go out and do a careful analysis of all interfacing systems. Make sure you do a clean data, data cleanup. I mean, hardball right down to make sure it's polished up. Yep. Uh, make sure that you have one person, one person who's held accountable for the effectiveness of the change. This doesn't need to necessarily be the top executive. But you're going to assign one executive who's, who's going to, again, go back to the architect analogy. Sure. And their feet will be held to the fire if this thing does not go well. That's important. Somebody who's going to be there with that team front to back. They're working with them regularly. They're, they're doing some blocking and tackling, just like you do in any management. Um, and, and which, by the way, I want to just offer parenthetically. Are you ready for this? Please. All management is change management. There's even a Harvard Business article that supported my thinking. I had this about 10 years ago. I saw that show. Because if you're doing something today and you're doing the exact same thing a year from now, on November 2nd, 2024, you're not doing anything. You're just status quo. So all good management, all good managers are changing things constantly. That's part of your organization. So look for some of them. Uh, so I just wanted to add that in there. Uh, but there's a couple of other things to do. You want to make sure that you've got the, the follow-up system taken care of. Yep. All, of those, all of those elements that we talked about already, those are things that you need to do. And uh, somewhere, again, I, I have to brag about this because in this book, um, and I'm really not trying to sell, I'm just trying to say there, there's a place within my book where I've got an entire front-to-back look at this thing. 
where all of the different pieces and parts of what you've got to put together. I mean, there there's details like that about what executives would need to do, what managers need to do, et cetera. I think just taking the time to talk it through and talk it through with other folks uh, within your team. Uh, one, one last one, one last one is, is, is this, making sure you define the scope of the change. Sure. Because uh, as I say, and this is sort of colloquial, but scope happens. Yeah. I mean, you start with something this big and you say, this is what we're gonna do. We're going to make sure that we move all the green garbage cans, the blue garbage cans by October of 2024. And these are some of the processes we're gonna do. Somebody will come in who doesn't really wanna do this change and say, while you're doing that, let's, let's do this. <laughs> and they open the change up a little bit more and they add a little more on. And then uh, Bob Smith, who's been there for 40 years, said, you know, I've been wanting to do this for a long time. So let, let's add that on. And then, uh, uh, I don't know, uh, Angela comes in and says, you know, we, we need to get some of this data stuff sorted out. So let's add that in. By not scoping this thing tightly, you're going to end up with a monster that nobody can do. And so when someone comes in to add on to the change, you say, that's fine. Where will you get the financing? Where will you get the resources? Where will you get the additional time? What else has got to give? That scoping piece uh, is something that it's 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 not obvious because it, we, we hear the term scope creep. It's really true. But saying, no, we're not going to do that, you know, irritates some people. But that way, you're more likely to get stuff done. I'll give you a quick example. I coach doctoral students. Doctoral students, whenever they come in to do their dissertation, they want to change the world. They want to get a Nobel Prize off their PhD. I'm like, stop. All we want you to do is get this little piece of research done. Just get that done. Don't worry about whether or not it's going to change the world. But, but that's what we want to do. No, no, no. Do this. There's two reasons that's beneficial. Number one, you start to show the organization you're having progress. And as John Cotter said in his brilliant book on change, show small wins. Because that does something psychologically where the organization says, oh, we can do that. The second thing you want to do by getting that done is then the team gets a little bit of enthusiasm. It's like, oh, we got that done. And by the way, that's a brilliant place for executives to come in, maybe at, a, at, a, at a one quarter of the project and have a, have a dinner, have a time to get together, um, just something basic. I'll tell you what, 50 bucks a pizza is amazing, amazing stuff. Yeah. Great. Telling people you care for them. And again, the, the leader of that team is constantly rewarding people along the way for stuff. Little things. Yeah. Um, those are the kinds of things that, that are so important. I love it. I love it. And I, I, I grabbed a quote from what you just brought to uh, our, our audience here. All management is change management. Otherwise, it is status quo. I thought that was something uh, pretty noteworthy. That should go on a wall somewhere, Jim. It, 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 it's in a Harvard Business Review article a couple of years ago. It actually said yeah. the same thing. Yeah, outstanding. Hey, let's talk about key behaviors that leaders need to have when they when what like you talked a little bit about you know that you know communication. You talked a little bit about showing small wins, the aggregation and, and cultivating of that culture. What what other behaviors are important for leaders in terms of the confidence and you know that that can do attitude? Is is there something else that's kind of the secret ingredient to you know that behavior of change? Well, you just mentioned it before. Don't make it another flavor of the month. Yeah. Um, one of the things that happens uh, when uh, executives go through airports is they're they're going to be on a plane, so they pick up the latest business book. Yep. And they go, "Wow, that's pretty cool. Let's let's go do that." 
So that starts getting activated in the organization. And then they go on another trip, pick up another business book. Well, this is a great idea. Let's do this. And before long, uh, executives have, have cracked up maybe four or five different big changes. Yeah. I was out in the field a couple of times and I, I had a couple of guys. I won't use some of the language that they used, <laughs> but they'd say, do you know all the things that the corporate has sent me? And they'd show me a list of all these projects. And then they'd say, I'd ha I have to figure out which one of these people I have to tick off. And they used a few other words. Um, but what it comes down to is one of the things executives have to be careful about is not looking at your organizational capacity. You only have so much funds to do investments. Yeah. You only have so much human motivation to do change. Let me say that again. You only have so much money to do investments. You only have so much human motivation to do change. So if you're adding constantly adding projects because you're looking at the shiny new object. You're putting your incredible pressure on your organization and people are going to have to decide what am I not going to do? So that becomes not everything can become priority one. You have to decide which of these changes is going to be the biggest. And if it's this big IT change, you may have to put some of your, quite frankly, your own pet projects off to the side for a while because there's stuff you want to do or get rid of the breathing dinosaurs projects that have been here forever that we don't need to do anymore, but we keep doing them because somebody wants to keep doing them. <laughs> uh, just think looking at prioritization sure. and getting, cutting it down to the four or five key things. I don't, I think Ram Sharam or somebody said the, the concept of execution was getting to those critical few. That is still true. Yeah. Especially when you come into change. So I'd say, okay, what don't we have to do this year? What can we say no to and focus on this and get it done? Let's get to a, a, a sort of a prescriptive uh, set of uh, recommendations that you might have for our audience today. And if you had one suggestion for executives that are planning to initiate a change uh, of some nature, whether it be IT or, or something else, what would that be? It's real simple. What you start, finish. Stick with it the whole way. Demonstrate to your organization that you really care about this change. That's number one. Uh, that's the concept of architect. Again, you're going to start this. You're going to break ground, turn the shovels over. You're also going to be the last person that closes the door on the new building that that person takes. What you start, finish. Love I've it. seen so many executives start a change and go on to the next thing. Better to get it started and finish it. Again, that doesn't mean that's the only thing you're working on. I, I know executives are busy. But what you start, finish, stay with it all the way to the end. That would be the big one. Outstanding. You know, Jim, you've referenced some of your work um, in the books that you've published, um, The Architects of Change being one of the most prominent, but there's a couple of others, uh, a couple of other uh, quivers in your, uh, in your, in your, you know, arsenal, if you will. Sure. Um, what, what sort of, what other books have you published on, on topics related to change management? Um, another one, you, you mentioned culture when you and I were talking prior to this yeah. time. Yeah. I have written a book called If Your Water Cooler Could Talk. And that is about the five elements of organizational culture. They're not as complicated as you might think. Again, remember, Jim comes from a blue collar family. <laughs> it's basic things, but you should check those things out. It's If Your Water Cooler Could Talk. Cool. Uh, that is about what I call organizational engagement as opposed to employee engagement. Looking at the organization as opposed to looking at me, looking outbound. Can we do this? Can I do this? Very important. That, that's most of my research or my dissertation. 
Then I've got this book, People Development, uh, the best part of leading a team that just came out. Uh, that That's about, we hear a lot, especially from Gen Z millennials, they want purpose in their life, uh, especially in the organization. Le doing people development well is yeah. a big deal for them. They want to know they have meaning in the workplace. Sure. And it doesn't have to be complicated, but it needs to be attended to in a very intentional way. Yeah. Uh, and so uh, I've, got, I've got another one. My first book is called The Nuts and Bolts of Leadership, which is still my bestseller. It's kind of a bunch of real quick, like one or two page recommendations based upon 40 years in the workplace and, and you know, basic stuff like make sure you got a base camp for yourself so that you can relax and, and, and refresh. Uh, uh, things like, like I talked to you about before, everything I learned about management that learned from working with rock and roll musicians. Uh, I mean, I've, there's some basic stuff in there, but I, nuts and bolts of leadership is, I would really recommend it for frontline supervisors. Uh, they're always looking for quick, quick things to learn. That that would be the book. So those are the five books. I'm not going to write another one. I said I wasn't with people development, but I did that. One of my friends is big, big uh, begging me to write another book. I'm like, no, I'm not going to do that. But I may end up doing that anyway. No mas, no mas, no mas. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you know, on the on the topic of music, uh, we just had a a really cool. Uh, keynote our master of ceremonies at our symposium in Chicago, uh, Alan Schaefer, from a, a, a group called Banding People Together, uh, played and strummed his guitar on stage and talked about uh, you know getting your team in the groove. So it's another cool approach to um, behavioral alignment and and you know thinking about all the different cultures and personalities that exist and uh, just really cool. He equated different personality types to different lead singers like Jimi Hendrix, Bruce Springsteen, Lady Gaga. And it was just really cool. Uh, so uh, he, he another shout out. important thing in there because what you, what you have in really powerful organizations, is a lot of really talented people, a lot Absolutely. of really talented people, getting them to focus together Absolutely. is the master skill of any executive. Yep. If you could, I don't care what the other things they've got going on in their lives. If you can get them to work together and do a big change, that is like getting to the top of a mountain together and saying, we did this. That's exciting. That's the most yeah. exciting thing I ever did. Yeah. Is seeing talented people work together to accomplish something big. Outstanding. Hey, Jim, let's, um, you know, a lot of prescriptive, by the way, this has been an awesome session. Uh, our, our listenership is, is loving this. I can, I can tell a lot of prescriptive recommendations for action, right? Those things that they should embrace. What are some of the things they should avoid? Pitfall avoidance, learning moments that you've seen where it's like a, oh, you know, four letter word moment where, <laughs> where something was encountered that was uh, sort of something that you could, you know, share with our listening audience as a takeaway of, of what not to do, something not to emulate. It goes back to what, what I said they should do. If you start a change, finish it. If yeah. you don't, you're going to have to come up with some kind of mea culpa because listen very carefully. There are victories and trophies, but there are monuments. Let me say that again. There's victories and trophies, but there's monuments. If you do a poorly done change and don't complete it, that will become a monument to your career. Not every monument I've seen in Milwaukee where I live is a good monument. <laughs> a lot of soldiers that died in battles and so forth. So if, if you want that monument attached to you the rest of your life, do a poor job with the change, uh, which means you're not going to follow through on it. You're going to let the team die or, or you're going to uh, not give them the resources that they need or you're going to ignore them when they need help. 
that'll be a monument that will be associated with your name forever. If you want a victory and a trophy, take it all the way to the end. I, I think the other thing too is don't minimize, and I, I, I don't, I, I have to think about how to say this. Sometimes executives get a power disparity in their head. And I get this. I can say this now after working with hundreds of leaders. I worked hard to get to where I'm at. I, I did education. I, I struggled. I took the risks that nobody else took. I get all that. But don't let that separate you from the guy on the front line where it's 20 below zero uh, with an Allen wrench. Uh, we're in this together as an organization. They respect the work that you do because of the responsibilities you have. But don't ever let that dismiss the fact that what they're doing is that's the haymaker. That's the rainmaker. That's where the money's coming in. And again, this goes back to me, just my blue collar roots. I saw in organizations, uh, some managers would come down to the shop floor with a, this is a long time ago. I'm a pretty old guy, but, you know, <laughs> white tie, short sleeve shirt, time study. And the guys on the floor really were uncomfortable with that. Then there were other managers who walked down there. How's it going? What can we do for you? This is back in the 70s. The difference in respect of those two types of leaders is dramatic. Sure. And I think that's one of the big ones. It's uh, it's easy when you worked hard to get someplace to forget where you came from. Uh, but uh, I never forgot that I was a blue collar guy and I never will. <laughs> Outstanding. Hey, let, let's look at some of the, you know, prognostication of the future here. Right. So, like, you know, there's a lot of like things that are just evolving right in front of us. We're we're in this. Um, sort of geopolitical climate that's intensifying some some really strange waters that i'm sure we're going to encounter in, in 2024 with the u.s election and all these geopolitical activities we've got you know the pandemic is behind us and now we've got the return to office happening you know after the work from home uh transformation what what is what's something else that's coming down the path in terms of opportunity for change what are, what are you kind of tracking in terms of opportunities for change moving forward you, you have to have an organization that understands AI to the max. Sure. They've got to know that right now. Uh, all of the, the associated things that come with AI. I mean, uh, you'll find a couple of people in your organization will be excited about what I'm saying. Bring that into your culture. Bring that onto your team. Get somebody that's a good AI expert immediately. Uh, understand how chat GPT is going to influence things like your training organization, uh, the people in the field. Understanding AI, because it's moving so fast, you have to have somebody on your team who can track with that. I mean, I'm, I'm not a politician, so I don't understand all the rest of the stuff. Everybody's got opinions on that. But but AI is a reality moving extremely fast. And I think having some people on your team understanding, OK, we're, our customers uh, have rooftop units, they have chillers. That's great. But what is it about their organization that's going to be affected by AI? What about my suppliers? How are they going to be affected by AI? How will my customers be affected by AI? That's that's a monstrous thing. And it's got to be looked at in detail because, again, because of the speed with which it's moving. So you have to have somebody that's thinking out two, three years in, in advance of where that's going to be. So that you, when the, you know, like Gretzky used to say, I'm going to go where the puck's going to be. They've got to be out there. Uh, I think that's probably the biggest one overall. Something that I could speak to. I mean, there are other topics, but I, I don't feel comfortable talking to them. <laughs> sure thing. Sure thing. Well, let's uh, let's let's end our discussion with something personal about yourself. Uh, get to know you a little bit better on the personal level. What's something about you our listenership uh, doesn't know? I've been playing music since 1966. 
All uh, right. I actually released uh, six CDs. They're out on, uh, you can hear some of my music out on uh, Broad Jam. You can hear it on any of a number of platforms. Um, I love music. I've always said that I was a musician trapped in a manager's body. And I think artists uh, bring a lot to the table in your organization. So if you have artists, use their art. Um, as you can see behind me through some other things, I do watercolors. Cool. This is part of, I've got the I've got the landing gear down for real retirement here within the next year or so. Um, so I think artistic, my artistic nature is, is a big part of it. Awesome. Uh, and I think that's been, uh, that's been beneficial to me in many ways in my life. That's great. That's great. Well, listen, he, uh, I, I am so pleased to be joined by you today. This has been a great discussion for our listenership. Um, he is Jim Bone. He, he has published many books that are great resources for you. Uh, spent a little bit of time with us today. If you'd like an introduction to Jim, we'd be happy to facilitate that. Um, and uh, we're linking to uh, Amazon to some of his you know, best-selling books here. Um, and uh, we'd encourage you to take a look. Um, and uh, Jim, I just want to say thank you. This has been a really great discussion and I'm sure it's going to be a great resource to our listenership. So thank you very much for your time today. I've really enjoyed this. John, John, I'm, I'm humbled. Uh, it's an honor to be here today. Thank you so much for giving me the opportunity to just express my thoughts. Wonderful. Well, listen, hey, thank you to our listenership. Uh, really appreciate your participation. Hopefully this was a great session for you like it was for us. Um, and uh, we uh, will be producing this uh, and it will be available for consumption via LinkedIn, our website, and whatever podcast channel you subscribe to, whether it's Spotify, Overcast, Apple, whatever you get them. Uh, so you can find it there as well. Uh, again, thank you, Jim. Um, we're going to have to get you back here or take this show on the road at some point because this was a great one. Look forward to it. Thanks a lot, everyone. Have a great day. Take care.